Hey, everybody, Fran Frischella here, and welcome to World of Basketball, the podcast that shrinks the basketball globe for you and brings you interesting guests from around the basketball world. And uh, we are having a blast as we head towards uh, this will be episode number 78. If you're keeping track and if you, uh, you know, we really enjoy that you are following what we're doing. Make sure you download uh, the World of Basketball podcast wherever you get your podcast. And uh, you can go back and listen to all of the previous episodes. And we're glad to have you aboard. We get a lot of great uh, feedback from our friends around the world and and uh, ex- excited to keep bringing this to you. Next week, we will have a very special uh, March Madness preview. And uh, we've, we've estimated that in the, in the uh, two years we've done World of Basketball, we probably will have about 15 college players that will participate in the uh, NCAA tournament coming up. Uh, Oscar Shibway, obviously, and Jeremy Sohan most recently, Kofi Coburn in the past, uh, so many others. Christian Coloco from Arizona will go on and on. But you'll listen. It'll be a great episode put together by my partner and, and great producer, Chris Tyler. So be ready for that next week. And this week, we have Ian O'Connor, who has written a definitive biography of Coach K. And uh, we get into Coach K's career. Obviously, a large part of it is taking over the United States Olympic team or senior men's national team. Back in 2005, we get into a lot of that, his interaction with NBA players, specifically LeBron and Kobe. I know many of my coaching buddies around the world uh, uh, admire Coach K, and uh, he's certainly arguably the greatest basketball coach in the history of the United States. Uh, obviously, John Wooden fans can make an argument, but I think Coach K has certainly left his mark on a game that all of us who listen to World of Basketball uh, love. So you'll get a little insight into him from Ian O'Connor. And Ian is uh, a friend, a great writer, has done definitive biographies of Derek Jeter, of Bill Belichick. And now he uh, tells you why um, he decided to write this incredible biography of uh of Coach K. So without further ado, we bring you Ian O'Connor, the author of Coach K, The Rise and Reign of Mike Shashevsky. Ian, it's a real pleasure, man. I know you're running around crazy, and I'm so glad that we could connect on the, and have you on the podcast. Hey, Fran, any time to be with you is my pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having no, me. No, it's great. Um, let me ask you this. Um, you, you have written three that I can think of now, highly successful. This will be highly successful, but you wrote a book on Derek Jeter. You wrote a book on Bill Belichick and now uh, Coach K. And as I analyze it myself as a sports fan, I think highly successful at what they do, iconic in many ways, and complicated. Those are the three things that come to mind that to me like kind of marries them all together. How do you go about picking... A, a somebody like Jeter or Belichick or Kay, when you want to write a, an entire book about them and not a magazine article? Well, the uh, first thing is you have to be fascinated by the subject or else just particularly if you have a day job like I do right now, I used to be a columnist at ESPN.com. Now I'm a sports columnist at the New York Post. So it's really when you do a book, it's like having two full time jobs. And so you really need to be in love with the idea, not necessarily the subject, but be, be really passionate about uh, doing an historical document on one of these figures. And, and I was in all those cases. 
And uh, just as characters, I think the one thing that that they have in common is just attacking every day as if it were game seven of the World Series, no matter what time of year it was, offseason, regular season, postseason. And, and the three people you mentioned certainly did that for, for the length of their careers. Uh, but I, I'm big on writing about human beings. I, I'm not big on writing about organizations or trends. It's just not my thing. So I always thought if uh, I could have applied the way I write, whether they be columns, features, or books, I, I could do the same thing on political figures, re religious figures, business leaders, and CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, because I don't feel like I write about quarterbacks, coaches, or shortstops. I, I write about human beings. And so, so that's my approach anyway. And, and the way to attack it is to interview as many people as possible in their lives. And then hopefully you pull off the definitive account uh, of what I think in all cases with my books has been a great American life. Yeah, well, certainly uh, all three of those. Uh, I, I said iconic. I think iconic would fit Jeter, mm -hmm. Coach Belichick, and Kay. Um, more often than not, I know Coach K did not uh, did not talk to you about the book, but he didn't hesitate. He didn't stop people close to him from talking to you. I, how, how how many people did you actually get to talk to about K when it was all said and done? I think my final count, Fran, was 276 people to be exact. <laughs> but yeah. uh, so the, the challenge of doing K was not quite as forbidding as the challenge of doing Belichick. Belichick not only didn't talk to me, but he actively called and had others call and lobby friends and associates to to also not talk to me. And so Belichick, I felt like I was standing at the bottom of Mount Everest looking straight up at the beginning of that process. K, it was challenging. I don't think Duke is quite as secretive and paranoid as the New England Patriots, but close enough. So it wasn't easy getting information uh, from from behind those walls. But but yeah, it was uh, it's a challenge when the main uh, subject does not cooperate. I, I, I will always appreciate Mike Krzyzewski for not only not blocking people, but he actually did encourage some people to talk to me. And he allowed me to speak to his closest friends growing up in Chicago, his closest coaches, assistants and associates in college basketball. So so he could have made my life a lot more difficult than he did. Yeah, I, I want to get into that. I want to ask you about Belichick for a second, because I, I loved your book. I love the most recent book that Seth Wickersham. Yeah, wrote. great book. Uh, yeah. Before your book, Halberstam, David Halberstam wrote a fast, fascinating book, which as, a, as someone who loves the coaching profession like I do, I just thought it was so illuminating. I always, uh, back when it came out, I, 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 I told a lot of young coaches, read this book, you'll know what coaching's about. When you take on a subject like Belichick that obviously Halberstam probably had a little more uh, access, uh, I think, to build. A lot more. <laughs> a lot more, yeah, yeah. And probably the, a 180. How do you go about attacking a, a figure like that when, when, when one of the, one of the, the great writers – of our of our time has already written that biography if you call that a biography yeah i i really thought and i don't want to speak for him obviously and he's no longer with us but halberstam to me it seemed like that book was more of a hobby book and and i think that obviously a lot of time had passed since that was published and uh he's one of the great authors of all time certainly but i i thought there was still a lot of meat on that bone and, and, and just to, if you just reduce it to the amount of years that had passed since since that book, a lot had happened in Bill Belichick's life, both professionally and personally. And so I felt like there was a lot of ground there to to cover. 
And, and I think that, uh, frankly, for instance, just growing up in his high school teammates and, and anecdotes in college where he had a coach at uh, Wesleyan who really abused him in a practice and got him hurt. And that story had never been told. And I, I had that in detail, a lot of teammates on the record who were there for that practice where he got absolutely pancaked and run over until his leg snapped. And so just things like that. I just thought there was still a lot of his life that hadn't been explored. And that's what I, I set out to do. And I think with Belichick, I talked to about 365 people. And most of my books, Fran, are two years, two years and change. Belichick was a solid three years because I knew that was going to be my greatest challenge. Yeah. And, and, and Halberstam's book, I believe, came out in 04, if I'm not mistaken. Right yeah, I was going to say 05, 04, 05 was yeah, in that area. Yeah. Yeah. Before he became the you know uh, greatest football coach of all time in the NFL, probably. Right. Um, what do you go in like with Coach K? I mean, you covered him. You were at the you were at the famous Leitner shot. You, you because of your the nature of your job, you've probably run. You've probably written some profiles of him or Duke or Shire or or J.J. Redick or Grant Hill through the years. How much of a preconceived notion did you go in with to write this? And how how does that work when you already kind of do you go in empty? Do you go clear minded and say, I'm, I'm going to I know what I think I know about this guy, but I really want to dive in and kind of erase everything I do know. Well, because, Fran, of, of some of the on hand, firsthand things I I had witnessed, I had something of an idea, but but you try to be as open minded as possible, even though you witness some things, some major events in his life. And so, for instance, I didn't know how good of a one on one communicator he was. And I didn't realize that I was going to get from a lot of players, not only players, but other people in his life that you know, behind closed doors, one on one. And I imagine you've had conversations with him alone. But whether he's talking to a Fortune 500 CEO or a, a teenage basketball prospect from a challenging background, he could really he's he, he's got some powerful stuff behind him. He can make you feel like you're the only other person in the world at that moment. And that's just something I, I didn't really know or I maybe assume that that he had that as part of his skill set. It's funny that and I, I knew this obviously before I started the book, but in 1999, that was the first time I ever sat right behind him in a game. He was playing in the Sweet 16 in the Meadowlands against Steve Alford and Southwest Missouri State. And for two hours plus, that is the most profane experience. I've never heard a coach curse like this in my life. And I wasn't offended because I cursed too, but not like this. And it was at players, refs, even his assistants like Quinn Snyder. He just blasted twice in the middle of that game. And I remember being like taken aback by that. And then after talking to a lot of people, they shared that experience. They didn't know either. But the first time they sat near that Duke bench, they they found out in a hurry that that he coached that way. That was part of his approach. Yeah, we've heard that. You know, we've heard that he covers his mouth, you know, when he's you know, MF and a referee or something and right. or, or a player. Um, one of the things I felt, I, you know, I've tried to read everything I could on this guy as a, as a co a young coach at one time. And as I got older and the Chicago experience, the, the childhood, many of us who grew up in Jersey city or Brooklyn, like I did, or, or Chicago, similar backgrounds, ethnic immigrant in, uh, uh, involvement at some point, when you look back at his and talk to his friends and his childhood, what is it about his childhood that you think makes him the incredible 
you know, coaching success. I would say he and John Wooden are the two greatest coaches of all time. We can argue either way, but what is it about growing up in the streets of Chicago with, uh, with the Columbos and uh, all, all those, all that, all that stuff that affected him and, and gave, gave, and, and, and was, was the impetus for his success. It's funny you mentioned the Columbos. They were a gang in name only that the real gangs in Chicago left them alone because all those kids did was, yeah, they just played sports all day and night, and they were so benign that the real gangs just left them alone and knew they were harmless. But Mike's uh, parents were, uh, his father and, and mother did not complete high school. They labored their entire adult lives for wealthy people. His mother was a cleaning lady. His dad was an elevator operator who later owned a small tavern that was not successful. And, and so he saw that, and he saw that his mother had two dresses her entire life, perfectly pressed, hanging in the closet. And that's all she needed. And I think when he when he also witnessed his, his father or knew that his father had changed his name from Krzyzewski to Cross to avoid discrimination of Polish American American immigrants and their children. I think that had a lot of uh, impact on him profoundly and, and, and maybe lit a competitive fire within. I think he built that program with, with a certain rage inside. And it's funny, a Saturday night after losing to Carolina Cameron in the farewell. You saw a little of that come out when he took the mic and he basically told everyone to shut up without using those words and let me speak. And and I've gotten some texts and emails about that. And I said, well, Coach K doesn't always show that side to the public unless you're really watching closely in the game. But that's that's Coach K, what what he did there. And, And he reprimanded his team for losing. He called it unacceptable. And he basically told everyone in the building to be quiet and let me speak. So I think that what he witnessed as a kid, as a street kid from Chicago, what he saw his parents endure, he was taught early on, you better fight to make a place in this country. And yes, there are people who will try to take things away from you. Effectively, people took his father's last name away from him. So I I think that did light a a fire within. And that's the reason he's walking away with 1200 victories, five national titles, maybe six. And, and 12 and counting uh, trips to the final four. And, and yes, I would put him slightly ahead of John Wooden on the, on the all-time list. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would too. I think the longevity speaks for itself. Coach Wooden didn't really start winning until 64, 65 and had that quick run. And then we, we don't, you know, there are other mitigating circumstances around his success that with, with Sam Gilbert and et cetera. Um, I, the story you told, I, I once in, I once interviewed him. He spoke at the Doak Walker luncheon, which uh, SMU puts on every year. And if it might it might be Troy Aikman one uh, one quarter of the year, and then it might be Coach K, it might be somebody else in another uh, realm of sports. He he agreed to speak at the at the Doak Walker luncheon, but he said, "I don't want to give a speech. I want someone to interview me." So I got a chance to interview him, and he knew me, and he was very gracious. And he told a story about Coach Knight coming into his home and selling West Point to mom and dad and Mike being a little bit uh, wasn't really into it. And he, he your story in the book is verbatim what he told me, because he said, I could hear my mom and dad in the kitchen after Coach Knight left. They spoke in Polish and then every other, uh, they would speak in Polish and then say stupid Michael. And they'd speak more Polish and say stupid Michael. And I'm just curious to, if you can recount anything that you remember about his decision or the family's decision to choose West Point. 
his high school coach, Al Ostrowski, he told me he was involved in that too, that he really helped persuade Mike to go to West Point and play for Bob Knight. And I don't think that had been reported in the past. Uh, but he said, actually, I, if I remember correctly, I have this in my book that uh, Mike and his mother had come over and, and he talked to them about it. And he, he thought they should go to West Point. Mike did not want to be a soldier. He wanted no part of handling a gun that was never anywhere near his ambitions. He wanted to be a teacher and a coach. And and he thought going to a military academy, it's just something that he had no interest in. And it wasn't so much fear of what was on the horizon in Vietnam, even though some of his friends were very concerned about that. It was just more that he had no interest in it and never thought about it. So and Bob Knight was a pretty persuasive guy, as you know. And so uh, he, he worked on the parents and, and obviously won uh, Mike over in the end. I think he just wore him down. I think his parents wore him down. And he decided, his parents said, hey, the families like ours, we don't send people to West Point. Rich people do, accomplished people do. But this is our American dream. You're going. And so he did. He went. And one other uh, scene from the book, and when Mike's a senior at Army, and they're getting ready to make a run to go to the NIT. At the end of that season, his father dies. And, and Bob Knight flew to Chicago, skipped practice to be there to comfort his mother. And I understand, and, and the excerpts from the book got a lot of attention, the unraveling of the knight Chesky relationship. But there were positives in that relationship, a lot of them early on. And Mike never forgot that Bob Knight was there for him when, in his darkest hour and really comforted his mother in the kitchen, sitting there talking, eating, laughing. And, and that is something that he never forgot. Yeah, I once asked Coach, Okay. In fact, the Olympic team was up at West Point for a, a practice. And I once we were talking and I said, your greatest skill is, is probably your man, management of people, your one-on-one, -on -one, what you mentioned earlier about the one-on-one -on -one conversations. And I, I said to him that I, I told one of his ex-players that I didn't think it was his X and O ability, but his leadership ability. And I, he did say to me, um, West Point is the greatest leadership incubator in the world. And when you look at his career, I want I wonder how much you can discern from not only his childhood in Chicago, which you 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 chronicled well, but also the impact West Point had on, on him. Not not as a soldier, because he always he really wasn't a soldier. He was playing for the armed forces team for most of that time. Uh, but in, in you know, in point of fact, the, the leadership that he got from being at, at that place. Well, when you walk around that campus at West Point and I think some people there hate when it's called a campus. So uh, at the academy and, and you do something that's not 100 uh, percent according to the code, if you you're supposed to square off every corner you walk, you're supposed to take it at a 90 degree angle or make it a 90 degree angle turn in a stairwell or walk into class. And if you are a little sloppy in the execution of that, upperclassmen get right in your face and just absolutely degrade you and, and scream profanities in your face. And so, and, and Bob Knight, of course, he, he would do that as part of his motivational approach. And I just think Mike learned there that that's how you motivate and inspire. And really, I think a lot of college basketball friend, uh, fans might be surprised, Fran, to hear this, but behind closed doors in practice, he's as tough as there is in terms of shouting tough, degrading things in your face. And and, and he's got a lot of Bobby Knight in him. Now, Knight crossed the line of acceptable coach player conduct, and Mike would go up to the line, but he wouldn't cross it. And I think that was the difference. But there's some a fair amount of West Point in him as well, uh, beyond the street kid from Chicago. And 
So I, I do think that was how he was taught. This is how you motivate. This is how you lead. And, and he applied that certainly at Duke. If he were, if he were 29 years old today, coaching at Duke, could that style work? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. And I, I think that's across the board in sports. It, it just it's a different generation. It's easy for me to say at age 57, I sound like a, a guy yelling for someone to get off my lawn. But it, it's it's a different generation. I don't think you can lead that way anymore. Now, the great thing about Mike, unlike Bobby Knight, who never adapted, Mike, when he got back from Beijing, Brian Zubek, who was the center there on that 2010 national title team, he's the one who intentionally missed the foul shot against Butler which was probably a mistake. <laughs> I think some, some Duke assistant coaches thought that was a mistake when Coach K called for that. But Zubek told me that he thought Krzyzewski came back from Beijing more player-friendly with, with his Duke Blue Devils just for being around LeBron James and Kobe Bryant and Chris Paul and company. He just he got a taste of motivating the greatest players in the world in a different way and came back and decided to be a little kinder, a little gentler, not much, but a little bit, in dealing with the college athletes. Yeah, I, 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 we could all tell that, I think. And it also helped his recruiting. Um, why did Jer why did Jerry Coangelo ultimately select him? They were in disarray in 2004 and five. Well, you know, Jerry had some options, but how did how do you see that decision that Jerry made uh, manifest itself? Well, you remember, Fran, in 2005, Jerry convened the basketball world, every Olympic coach and player uh, that, that we had who was available to attend that meeting in Chicago. And they threw around all kinds of ideas about the coach and the roster in that meeting. And, and when it came down to the coach and it was pretty clear, it was going to be coach K versus Greg Popovich. And obviously there was concern in the room. Why would we have a college coach coach these NBA megastars? Now, Larry Brown had been a bit of a disaster in Athens with that, group. And so it had to be cleaned up and Colangelo was hired to do that. Colangelo did not have a good relationship with Greg Popovich. I think that was a factor. Western conference battles. They just, they just didn't connect those two. And so that was part of it. Also Popovich, as you recall, was part of that Athens staff. And, and I think he was part of that 2002 George Carl staff in the world championships that finished what sixth in Indianapolis. So, yeah. so that hurt, that hurt. And Anyway, Krzyzewski was dying for the job. He really was. And Colangelo could feel that. What helped Coach K was in that meeting, Dean Smith and Michael Jordan both said, Coach K is the guy to get this thing done. Dean Smith actually said, Coach K is the only college coach who can get this done. This is his main rival at North Carolina down the road saying that. And I think that helped his cause without question. And later on, and, and Woj wrote about this for Yahoo at the time, Colangelo was was going around saying that, hey, I never really felt that Popovich was I, I still felt he was bitter about his past experience. And Popovich wrote him a letter, according to Woj. And I think this was confirmed, basically saying, stop talking about me if you wanted Coach K fine, but stop talking about my alleged lack of motivation for this for this job. It's not true. So it, it, I think deep down, Colangelo being a Chicago guy, being a, a someone from humble means in Chicago, connected just a lot easier with Krzyzewski than he did with Popovich. Yeah. Yeah. I, I it's almost, I, I hate to say it. It's almost, it, it, I don't know if you wrote it quite this way, but we all felt it was as much anti Popovich as it was pro K. I, I think that's a fair assessment. There was too much baggage there, I guess is the best way to and, put it. And going forward after the first Olympic experience winning in Beijing, 
a lot of people thought Coach K should have passed it off to Popovich, even though Colangelo offered him the gig in, in London in 2012 and, of course, in Rio in 2016. Bobby Knight was not the only person that he was really upset about it. He thought Mike should have stepped down after he should have made it a one and done deal like everybody else, effectively. And Knight, but Knight wasn't the only one who thought that uh, Coach K should have done that. But hey, Colangelo asked him a second time and a third time, and all Mike did was say yes. So it, it was really on Jerry Colangelo to make that switch. And I thought, I think anybody who loves USA basketball the way people like me do and follow international basketball, we were thrilled that Coach K had that connection with Kobe and LeBron and those guys and wanted to keep doing it because we wanted to reestablish, you know, the fact that. Uh, in, in its own humble way, which I thought, I thought our guys always showed grace, even in winning those goals. And I think that I, we were always, I, I'm one of those that was happy that coach kept coach K kept, kept going. Uh, I do remember covering the 2006 world championships. Um, and at that time I was becoming an international fan of their coaching. And I got the sense, and I, I, I got the sense in your book more so than any other place that coach K doubted himself. Um, and felt really bad about uh, getting beat by Greece with all this alleged talent that we had on our team. Uh, felt bad is really an understatement, Fran. He was beyond devastated. He thought as a West Point guy, he had let his country down for one. He was embarrassed and humiliated that basically, as you know, Greece ran that high pick and roll to death and the Americans never defended it, never adjusted to it. And he knew that people were saying, the, not necessarily it was only Popovich, but this is why you don't have a college coach running an international team of NBA stars. And so coming out of the Larry Brown disaster in Athens, here we have another disaster, a Coach K disaster in Tokyo. Now, American sports fans don't care as much about the world championships as they do the Olympics. So I don't know how much play it got back in the States, but globally, it was an embarrassment to the U.S. And, and Coach K thought of quitting, coaching. I mean, it was, it's, it's amazing that the guy spent 42 years in the ACC and by far the most devastated defeat he ever suffered was that one in Tokyo against Greece. And afterward, Beheim said, Coach K probably watched that tape a hundred times. And he was haunted by it. And he had to carry that baggage into Beijing. And by the way, LeBron James was on that 0-6 team that lost that game. Uh, I should mention, I give Coach K credit for getting that team to bounce back and beat Argentina for the, for the bronze medal, right? So they bounced back and, and somewhat overcame it, but LeBron was on that team. So going into 2008, here you have coach K carrying the baggage of Tokyo with him. On top of that, LeBron James hasn't bought in because he just lost a big international competition with coach K who's a college coach. LeBron just wasn't sold. And that was a big issue going into Beijing. You know, um, one other thing happened in, in Saitama was that if you remember, and I think coach K learned his lesson, he didn't know the name of the Greek player. Yeah, right. And, and I think that, that, that was that, not good. That irritated my international friends more than anything, that he did not understand how good Sophocles so, Shortsonitis was, you know. Um, but but he learned from that. Amazing. Uh, Fran, you, you you know that his he claimed yeah. that he didn't want to mispronounce the names. He knew them, but didn't want to mispronounce them. So he went with the jersey numbers and said, I don't know if I buy that claim, but well, that's what he, he said. He could get away with that if your name is Shashevsky. <laughs> so he, he might right. be able to he might be able to get away with that um how did he you 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 chronicled some great stuff in the book about his relationship with lebron lebron's discussing with him about kobe buying in before they went to beijing 
give me an overview of how he, you mentioned it when he went, when he came back from uh, Beijing, but give me an overview of how he actually evolved as a leader and as a coach because of all those experiences with those great, the greatest players in the world. Well, obviously he couldn't berate them. He, he couldn't curse them out. And he struggled with that some uh, early on. And, and for instance, Fran, uh, and I imagine as a, a high division one, high level division one college coach, you, you might have experienced this once or twice where as you're getting ready to start a practice and you're talking to your players and they're stretching, you, you need them to really pay attention 100 percent. And with the NBA player and he was used to that at Duke and the NBA players, though, they, they got their own thing before practice. Some have headphones on. They got their own routines with stretching and getting prepared for practice. And he felt like hey, what's going on here? But Nate McMillan and and uh, D'Antoni would say to him, hey, it, it's okay. This is what NBA players do. You have to let them prepare in their way at times. So he had to he had to adjust to that. And he realized he had to be the one doing more adjusting than the players to him. And I think that, listen, there are, there are scenes in the book. I have one time LeBron James, as he was talking to him in practice, turned his back on him. And Coach Case got on him and said, you need to make eye contact with me when we're talking. Another time LeBron's on a bus, a shooter going to a shoot around in Beijing. And he's audibly complaining about the necessity of this shoot around. So the coaches and players are hearing this on the bus. Krzyzewski has to say something. They park the bus, they get to the arena and they, everybody goes inside and coach K pulls them aside and, and says, LeBron, I can't have that. You know, we can't have our best player saying that on the bus and he said, you have to trust that I will never do something that will hurt our chances to win the gold medal. So I think that was a real process. It took time to win over that trust. But coming back from that experience, I just think two things. One, he was a little kinder and gentler with his players at Duke. And two, he decided I'm going one and done. I'm going to become John Calipari because I want to be I want to coach the best players in the world at that particular level. And that's why he went after John Wall late, lost him to Kentucky. And then, of course, Kyrie Irving opened the floodgates to to all the rest. Tell tell the story about uh, Kobe taking some tough shots. <laughs> LeBron, LeBron came to the bench and said, you know, I, I won't use the exact language, but right. LeBron wasn't happy with Kobe getting outside of the, uh, you know, the, the off the reservation, if you will. Do you have time for two LeBron uh, Coach K stories? Yeah, we do. We, we do. All right. All right, quick one on, on a meeting. So the first meeting in 08 in Las Vegas, Coach K wants the leaders to set a tone in this meeting. So that's Kobe, LeBron, D-Wade, and Jason Kidd. And he asked the four of them to speak in this meeting. All four agree. So the meeting unfolds, and it's going on, and, and the, the other three guys speak. LeBron doesn't speak. So somebody sitting near LeBron in the meeting told me you could feel the tension building. It was 45 minutes in and LeBron James is not speaking. And if you looked at his body language, he was sitting back in his chair like a kid not paying attention in class. And he said you could feel almost a power struggle in the meeting, uh, a test of wills between Coach K and LeBron. Is Coach K going to blink first and end the meeting or will he just continue it on and on and force LeBron to say something? <laughs> so finally, LeBron did speak. He said something very eloquent about, hey, in the NBA, we're not lucky enough to have this great talent as teammates. So we have it now. We have no excuses but to win the gold medal. And Coach K ended the meeting with two words, amen, brother. And that was it. So that, I thought that was a good scene. Uh, now, it, let, let's fast forward to Shanghai, the last prelim game against Australia. Kobe had started taking some Lakers shots, some BS shots. 
And some players started to grumble a little bit about it. Finally, LeBron against Australia, Kobe took two or three of those kind of shots. And he looked at Coach K, actually approached them and said, yo, coach, you better fix that mother bleep. And everyone knew who he was talking about. It was Kobe Bryant. So here you have a college coach who just had a humiliating loss in 06. Now he's got to confront Kobe Bryant on shot selection. That's something that Phil Jackson learned long ago is not a fun thing to do. So he didn't want to do it. But the next day he did pull Kobe into a side room. He opened his laptop. He showed him about a half dozen, maybe eight shots that he had taken and said, we, we can't have this. You can't, you can take these shots with the Lakers. You can't take these shots with team USA when your teammates are LeBron James and Melo and the rest. And Kobe looked at him and effectively said, okay, coach, it won't happen again. And it didn't. Now, now the funny thing is, I mean, you had LeBron holding coach K accountable, coach K holding Kobe accountable. That that's, that's the good news. Uh, the ironic thing is that in the Spain game, in the end, Kobe had to take some pretty acrobatic shots to save the United States from, from themselves, basically, right, and win that gold medal. So exactly. it pretty much worked out for everyone involved. All right, so um, Co Coach, Coach talks, talks, everybody talks Coach about talks. the brotherhood at Duke. What When it was all said and done, and not every single Olympic team of the three, every, every, it wasn't the same 12 guys, what ended up being the brotherhood of USA basketball after Coach K was done and LeBron and CP3, uh, I think AD, Anthony Davis played on one of those teams. What was the end result of their relationship? Did it forge a bond that is going to remain forever? How, how did the relationship evolve between K and those stars? There was, I think, a little relief after Beijing. That, that was the one you absolutely had to win. But I think there was a brotherhood that developed. Now, uh, LeBron and Kobe, of course, were not in Rio. And if you look at that roster in Rio, that was a losable roster. I know that's not a word, but I'll use it anyway. And, and so I remember saying to Coach K, going to, going to Rio with that team, man, you're one half away from being Hank Iba, and people are going to forget Beijing and London pretty quickly. He put a lot on the line there. I give him a lot of credit for that. And I think the brotherhood stems from the fact that they all put a lot on the line. Durant and, and of course, Kobe and LeBron and all those guys, if they lost one of those three, and I know they all didn't play in three, but just losing one of them, that was going to stick with them until the grave forever. And, and so I, I think that the brotherhood that was formed there was one based on the fact that coach K his assistant more coach K and the players, the megastars all put it on the line together. And they, they, they had a lot to lose. They had more to lose than to gain, to be honest with you, Fran, I think. And I think that is, it's a little different at Duke, but I think that is the, the bond right there. We were, we were fearless. We knew we had more to lose and we put it out there anyway, and we won. And I think that's the connection they feel. All right. Final minute. I'm going to let you go here. What's the thing that surprised you most about coach K as you look back on all the people you talked to, What's the one thing that you go, damn, I never had any idea. You know, I thought the, the idea that Duke ran the last clean program in America, perception maybe, but I, I thought that was uh, really important to him. And I think it's important to him. But a lot of players told me, man, that's not even close to winning in terms of importance to him. That really what he is and what he does is he wakes up every day with one goal in mind, and that is to beat you, whoever you are, whether it's Fran Fraschilla or Ian O'Connor or, or North Carolina, Tar Heels, whoever it is, he wants to finish the day ahead of you. And, and, and I said, well, what about the whole last shining city on top of a largely corrupt hill? 
And and they were like, yeah, yeah, you know, he kind of likes that, but it's nothing compared to winning. So I guess I shouldn't be surprised by that because the guy won 1,200 games and 530 plus more than John Wooden won. And you're right, his durability is just staggering. The fact that the guy is 75 years old and could still conceivably win the national title is just ridiculous. But I, I, I was surprised by that. I thought the whole clean image thing was more important than I was led to believe. Uh, I'll just, I'll close on this, Ian. Um, we talked about Saturday night in Durham, the, the really the loss to Carolina. I'm pulling for a Carolina Duke ACC final. That would be fun. <laughs> I think you'll get it probably. Based on <laughs> what you've said about coach K and what you've written about, uh, that would be a fun, uh, see that, that would, that would be a, that would be a dynamic final based on how coach K gets his team to react. So, uh, that'd be fun. Hey, listen, thank you for your time. We wish you all, all the best on this book. It is a fabulous book. Uh, it's a leadership book. It's a sports book. There's a lot of stuff in there. I learned about them that I didn't know. And you did an amazing job as I knew you would. And I can't thank you enough for coming on world of basketball. Hey, Fran, uh, congratulations on all your success as a broadcaster. You do an incredible job and you were a great coach and, and, and it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Many thanks to Ian O'Connor, the author of, Coach K, The Rise and Reign of Mike Krzyzewski, a fabulous basketball book. Uh, you get to really delve into what makes Coach K so special. Remember, next week, we are bringing you a March Madness preview where we go back and uh, put together all some great clips on all of the guests we've had that are going to be participating in the NCAA tournament, including guys like Oscar Shibway from Kentucky and Jeremy Sohan from Baylor. And I'll give you some thoughts as well as some key international players for you to keep your eye on as you fill out your brackets. Uh, remember to, uh, if you like what we're doing, subscribe and rate our podcast wherever you get World of Basketball. And uh, we love it. We love bringing it to you. It's our passion. My producer, Chris Tyler, and I have a lot of fun with it. And uh, if you've got a special guest uh, that you want to hear or you think we can try to get a hold of, tweet at me. Let me know, and we'll do everything possible to get uh, to get um, to bring to you somebody that's going to enlighten your international basketball IQ. So, with that, as we get ready for March Madness, I'm certainly ready. Uh, you can bet I'm not sure where I'm going to be next week. As a matter of fact, I know where I'm going to be next week. I'll be in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, working for Westwood One on the opening two rounds of the NCAA tournament. So, with that, I promise, even though I'll be in Pittsburgh. I'll bring you to another place in my world of basketball. World of Basketball is part of the Sirius XM Podcast Network. The executive producer is Chris Tyler. Sound designed by Robert Moore. A special thanks to Sirius XM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. Sirius XM Podcasts.